Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we consider one ingredient in many contexts. Today, we're talking about awful. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Fresh Catch Cafe owner and chef Harrison McHenry, and it's time to Check the Pantry. Something of a mystery why certain parts of dead animals are considered by most meat eaters to be delicious, while other parts of dead animals are considered so gross that even the mention of them causes performative gagging and loud protests that livers and hearts and kidneys and other organ meats are not worth eating. Skeletal muscle is an organ after all, so is chicken skin. There's no difference at a nutritional level between a tongue and a ribeye. They have almost equal amounts of fat, protein, and calories. The tongue is, of course, tougher and requires longer cooking. But brisket is the same, and few meat eaters turn their nose up at that. And it's not like offal has only recently disappeared from American menus either. The U.S. government made a heavy push to try to get more people to eat it during World War II food rationing, and for a little while, consumption went up. The war ended, prosperity increased, people decided they would rather eat the high parts of the hog, and offal went back to its previous status as the food of poor country people, recently arrived immigrants, and weird old men. The simple fact is that we don't eat much offal because we've never eaten much offal. People who grew up eating it don't celebrate it as a hearty people making delicious food with what they had. They see it as a necessity born of poverty that they've now left behind. Few cooks know what to do with it, and small butchers that can transform the less desirable cuts into something delicious are not common for many reasons. Disgust in food is almost entirely based in experience, both cultural and personal. If you haven't tried a food before, you're likely to be a little leery of it. If you can't relate it to any foods you're familiar with, you're even more likely to refuse to even try it. And if you do try it, you're likely to loudly hate it and question the sanity of anyone who professes to enjoy it. I once read an article in which a group of Chinese gourmets tried cheese for the first time. All of them were great connoisseurs of the kinds of Chinese delicacies that most Westerners would find revolting. There are a lot of fermented Chinese foods with slippery textures and funky aromas, and those are what this group loved. They considered themselves to be pretty adventurous eaters with a strong sense of what was good and bad. And they started with the most ordinary sorts of cheeses, the basic, Cheddars, Gruyeres, the kind of thing that you put on the cheese board precisely because they appeal to the widest number of people, if those people are dairy-eating Westerners. The Chinese gourmets were completely revolted by it. They hated the flavor, and they especially hated the texture. They were genuinely baffled that anyone anywhere would find cheese appealing. On and on the tasting went through some of the most celebrated cheese styles in the West, and the response was the same again and again. This is disgusting. 
The only reprieve from the criticism came when they got to the funkier blue cheeses, which a few of them liked quite a bit. And they pointed out certain ways in which they were similar to the familiar Chinese foods that they loved, because the great secret to overcoming disgust is to relate the food to something you know. There's always somebody pushing insects as food, but if you thought Americans were squeamish about livers and kidneys, just mention caterpillars. We all have lines we just won't cross, so it's safe to say I won't be deliberately eating a deep-fried tarantula anytime soon, but I once went to a restaurant specializing in exotic wild game, and one of the starters that evening was sautéed caterpillars in a white wine and garlic butter sauce. So we ordered it. And it turns out that if you put white wine and garlic butter sauce on anything, it tastes pretty good. Caterpillars are a little like good french fries, if you're wondering. Crunchy on the outside, fluffy and creamy on the inside. The trick, of course, was presenting an unfamiliar food in a familiar context. White wine and garlic butter sauce. I don't go out of my way to eat bugs, but since I've had them already and they were pretty good, it's much more likely that I would try and enjoy them again in the future. Form is everything in cooking, of course, and even the most dedicated, awful haters among us eat a fair amount of it. It's a major component of the meat trimmings that go into that most all-American of foods, beloved of picky eaters everywhere. The hot dog. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am here with Harrison McHenry. Good morning, Harrison. Good morning. And we are here to talk to you about awful. Now, I always hated it when I was a kid, even though I, I didn't really know what it tasted like. I just thought it was gross because, you know, it, I heard it was gross. And then one day when I was like 18 years old, my mom really liked it. And uh, she loved liver and onions. And uh, one day she ordered it at a restaurant and I was like 18 and I looked at it and I was like, give me, a, give me a taste of that. And I tasted it and I was like, man, this is good. Were you awful averse as a child or did you always love it? I had the exact opposite story. My grandpa was that old man who would uh, cook calf brains in the morning with his eggs or on a field trip, send you to school with that uh, beef tongue sandwich. So I didn't have a chance to, uh, to think that it was awful. Until I uh, got into a, a group of uh, my peers, and they, they got to see what I was eating, and they were like, ooh. <laughs> and, of course, naturally from there, I thought, well, this must be gross. Everybody yeah. else is saying it is. But I had a secret affair with it. <laughs> I, I truly loved hiding it. it. Hiding it at home when nobody saw you to right? see how uncool it was. You know, it's funny that you mentioned brains and eggs, because if you, if you read, like, American popular literature and cookbooks and stuff from, like, the especially around the turn of the century, like from about 1900 to the Depression, that was a really common breakfast dish. Yeah, it has very similar texture. I've never had brains. What are, what are they like? They're nutty. <laughs> and <laughs> they do have the, the similar texture of, uh, of scrambled eggs. And what do you do? You just uh, saute them or hold yeah. them? Mm -hmm. Like anything else with awful, you know, he would uh, soak them. And his, his was buttermilk. So uh -huh. we would soak the brains in buttermilk overnight. And in the morning, right into the cast iron skillet, and uh, it, it kind of reminded me of like a really soft hash. Uh, and then you crack the eggs, and then away we went. Wow. Awesome. I think brain is like impossible to get now, unfortunately. And in fact, uh, in the, the latest 
edition of Joy of Cooking, they talk about it. I guess I guess you're not really supposed to eat it anymore because of mad cow disease. Right. Because that's actually found in the brains. But I think like it's still okay as far as I know uh, with non-cattle animals. But don't quote me on that. And if you get mad cow disease, don't blame me. It's like with anything else, I believe, is know your source. Where are you getting this? You, you obviously don't want to go to the supermarket um, you know, where this thing has traveled a thousand miles, but, uh, by the Cargill, there's brains. some, there's some farmers at the head of the bay that, uh, that would, uh, or, you know, if you shoot a moose, right. Nothing. I've never tried moose brain. I'm not that brave. And I use, actually, I don't eat moose liver or moose kidneys because they have a high level of cadmium and they, the, they suggest that you don't eat more than like six portions of this, uh, a year. It's that, that metal cadmium is absorbed through willow. And as you know, ah, willow is uh, one of the moose's favorite food, but I will eat moose heart. But not liver, huh? Not liver or kidneys, and that's funny because those are two of my favorite organs to eat in uh, lamb or beef. Well, beef, you know, technically, calf liver is I much prefer. It's hard to get, though. You know, beef livers, beef liver itself is a lot more intense flavor, but calf liver, which is kind of how I broke in on it, is yeah, amazing. It is. I like calf liver. It is cleaner <laughs> tasting, but I do like beef liver, too, and the way I usually do that is I will... Pound it out flat, bread it, and chicken fry it. It's yeah, like yeah. chicken fried steak. Yeah, and it's real important with liver, you know, like, because if, if you get a whole liver, it's, it's pretty giant, but liver really needs to be um, cut, either cut or pounded really thinly. It does. Because uh, it doesn't take long to cook, and you, and you also don't want to overcook it, because overcooked liver does get... Oh, I can smell it now. That, <laughs> that must. I always knew my dad was uh, watching us for the night. You know, he could smell the liver coming from the kitchen. Mom wasn't cooking. Well, the one thing that I would actually eat liver in when I was a, when I was a kid, I didn't really know it was in there, was boudin, you know, because in South Louisiana... Oh, like, boudin noir? No, actually, boudin, boudin blanc. In South Louisiana, boudin is a, uh, is a rice sausage. It's rice, and usually it contains pork liver as well. All the best ones do. And um, it's a it's a really simple deal. You just go to you go to the boudin store, like every gas station sells it, and you buy a link of it, and they they make it in uh, in a beef casing, so you actually can't eat the casing. So you, it's like a ready made food. You go out, you bite off the end of it, you know, and you get it. It's all hot. You bite off the end of it in your in the front seat of your car, and you just squeeze this tube of <laughs> of livery uh, and rice goodness into your mouth, and it's just amazing. But awful preparations often get associated with specific cultures and are enjoyed with great relish by people from them. So boudin, South Louisiana, is one such food, and haggis in Scotland is another. Now, I'm not Scottish by blood or anything else, but I spent some time there, and I picked up a taste for innards mixed with oatmeal. And since Burns Night, Scotland's annual celebration of haggis and the poetry of Robert Burns, falls on January 25th, and since I had a line on some sheep guts, I figured it would be a good idea to make one. I am very, very excited right now. Now, I've made haggis before, but I've never made haggis. I've never had lungs to make it, and I've never had a stomach to make it. And I have both of these things today. And this particular haggis is very exciting because it is 100% Alaskan. As far as the meat goes, obviously, the oats aren't going to be Alaskan and the black pepper is not going to be Alaskan. All of the meat is Alaskan. I have a sheep's lung or sheep's lungs. I have sheep's lungs. I have a sheep's liver. I have a sheep's stomach and I have an Alaska beef heart. I tried to get the sheep's heart 
But the guy who had the sheep wanted the heart for himself. But he gave me everything else. So a haggis is a classic Scottish. It's basically, it's a sausage. It's made a little differently because everything is cooked before it actually goes into the sausage. I hemmed and hawed quite a bit before I uh, came in to start making this because everything in the sausage making part of my brain says start with raw meat. That's how you get a nice dense texture. It's how you keep things from being overcooked and kind of weird tasting. This thing has liver in it and overcooked liver can be really weird. But I've had a lot of haggis and I've always liked haggis. And with haggis, everything gets cooked and it gets cooked a lot. The starting process after you've cleaned everything, the starting process is to take the pluck, which is the liver, the heart, and the lungs. And lungs are pretty much impossible to get in the US unless you know somebody who's slaughtering an animal because I don't know the reason why, but they are considered unfit for human consumption by the FDA. I got lungs, lungs are going in this haggis. And so traditionally to start, you boil all this stuff for a couple of hours, you get a stock out of it, you mince your lungs, you mince your liver, and you mince your heart. Once it's all cooked and once it's all minced, then you take uh, some of the stock, you reduce the stock that you have from boiling all of the pluck. You mix that with the minced pluck and you take uh, steel cut oatmeal because if it's Scottish, it's gotta have oats and salt and black pepper. And that is pretty much it. There's not really anything else that goes into a haggis. We take all that, we mix it to the proper consistency, stuff it inside of a sheep's stomach, which is another thing that I haven't done. Not only have I not had the lungs before, I've never had the bag. It's really common, even in Scotland these days, not to use the actual stomach, uh, just cause you know, there's kind of a limited number to go around. They'll use the stomach um, for like the big ceremonial events, like, uh, like Burns Night or Hogmanay, which is New Year's Eve. Um, but for the run of the mill haggis is there most of the time now they use, uh, something a little like an ordinary sausage casing, usually like a beef bung or something like that. Something that's, that's pretty big. Um, so you can fit quite a bit in it, but, uh, it's not as big as a, a stomach cause a stomach you can, you can fit quite a bit in there. Like this one, this one doesn't even, it's not even going to fill the stomach by the time I'm finished with it. So using something else is perfectly acceptable. In fact, uh, the times that I've done it before, I didn't even use a casing. I just steamed it inside of a bowl or inside of a mold. Uh, I've done it in, uh, you can do it in a loaf pan. It's not, there's nothing inherent about the casing that uh, is necessary. The texture is still gonna be pretty similar as long as it's wrapped well. It's not served in the casing. The casing is just to contain the whole thing. You don't, you don't eat it. Typically, um, you're either gonna steam it or you're gonna boil it. Usually it's a lot simpler to boil it, so I'm gonna boil it today. You can also steam it, which is the traditional method of cooking a pudding. The original haggis was, you know, it's a pretty simple thing. It's peasant cooking, so they didn't even necessarily have an oven, so they were just boiling it in a pot of water. Steaming, you run a little less risk that you're gonna burst the thing because it's not in direct contact with the heat, and steaming is kind of the traditional way of cooking like an English pudding, so, you can also steam the thing, but today we're gonna boil it. Suet is the final ingredient, and I have a bunch of suet that I rendered. Well, this is actually lamb tallow. 
So this, I'm a little worried about the lamb tallow. It's gonna be pretty strong. Beef suet is pretty strong on its own. Lamb tallow is even stronger, but it's from around the kidneys. This is all interior fat, so it should be okay. And to be perfectly honest, this thing is gonna be pretty intense anyway. I don't think a little bit of lamb fat is gonna throw anybody off. So you take, after you've cooked this all, you've mixed it with your uh, steel cut oatmeal, added your stock, you've added your black pepper, you've added your salt. Then you take it and you stuff it into the sheep's stomach. And so I got the sheep's stomach, it was raw, so it took me a while to clean it out. You gotta scrape it, you gotta soak it in vinegar, uh, in a vinegar, acidulated vinegar water solution to kind of pull out some of that taste. But it's always gonna have kind of a fermented hay smell. This is very barnyardy. And barnyardy is a kind of a good flavor in moderation. There are a lot of really great wines that contain barnyard components. It's not a bad thing, if you like that kind of thing. But here, I'm ready to start making my stock, and this is a, exactly like making any other stock. I am going to cover my liver, my lungs, and my heart in cold water. I'm gonna bring it to a simmer, and I'm gonna let it simmer for a couple of hours. And this is something, like I say, every part of me sort of screams, don't, do this, mince all this raw and make this with starting out with raw ground meat. But that's not haggis. Haggis starts out with cooked pluck. So I'm gonna cook my pluck and it's gonna be haggis and it's gonna be terrific. And I'm extremely excited about this. I am plopping, here's my liver. My little sheep's liver. If you had the kidneys, you could totally put the kidneys in here too. I did have the kidneys. I ate the kidneys because I love kidneys. Kidneys are delicious. Liver, beef heart, and beef is totally legitimate to use in a real haggis as well. In fact, I think pretty much every haggis that I've made before this one has been mainly beef. Because in Alaska, it's hard to find sheep. I just happen to know my buddy Chris Ritchie, who was killing a sheep. And I said, you know what's coming up is Burns Night. Can I get some of that sheep awful? And he said, absolutely. He said, I want the heart. You can have the rest. So I took the rest. Now lungs, obviously, because they're full of air, they kind of float. And I'm gonna go ahead and kind of wash this whole thing off uh, just to get any grossness out. So I'm gonna rinse the whole pluck in uh, some cold water first, and then I'll pour this off and start anew because there's quite a bit of blood. Okay, now this second batch of water is pretty clear. I've gotten rid of a lot of the impurities so I don't have to worry about my, my stock getting cluttered up with junk. I am turning it on and I'm gonna bring this to a simmer and I'm gonna simmer this for a couple of hours. I'm gonna weight it down because the lungs do float so they're popping up on top so I'm gonna have to put a plate on top of uh, the lungs to keep them kind of submerged. Right now, I really don't have anything else to do for a couple of hours. And then all I'm gonna have to do is cool this, cool the pluck down, and then I can chop it up, mince it. I'll probably run it through the grinder 
and uh, start making my haggis. You know, after I finished making it, 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 it sort of occurred to me, there's there's a dish that I had never heard of it until I moved to Alaska because I didn't really know that many people from the uh, mid-Atlantic. But if you ask anybody from like Pennsylvania down to Virginia, they all get like woozy and, and dreamy eyes when you talk about Scrapple. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's basically the same dish, it's, except it's cornmeal or I think in Pennsylvania they use buckwheat instead of oatmeal, but it's all the rest of the stuff is the same. Ugh. Are you not a Scrapple fan? Uh, I, I, you know, I'm on the fence. It's just like with Haggis. It's uh, it's good every once in a while. But I do know what you're saying about uh, dreamy-eyed. More uh, to an Alaska a note, you talk to old-timers about jellied moose nose. They'll, I've heard of that. They'll get the same look in their eye. And a, oh, boy. Yeah. Have you have you done it? Not yet. They, you know what else they do the same thing about is uh, beaver tail. Oh, yeah. And the one time that I actually did get a beaver from Kathleen, my engineer's uh, husband, Jarl, brought back a beaver from, from uh, trapping. And unfortunately, he, unfortunately, the tail that he brought back, he, he told me, he's like, you probably don't want to use this because it frozen, it thawed. But he's like, we, we did kind of cook it and we kind of nibbled at it and it had frozen and thawed and wasn't in prime condition. But man, it, it, it's definitely like, you know what it reminded me of is uh, chicken feet. Oh, <laughs> That's a that's a real mountain man food there. <laughs> no, the real mountain man food is uh, is you know we were talking about this when I was talking about the stomach and having to empty out the stomach of the fermented hay. Well, I know like uh, Alaska natives, particularly the ones in the Arctic, every time they killed a caribou, that was like the delicacy. You know, as mm-hmm. soon as they killed it, they would empty out the stomach and eat the half fermented like lichen. You know, especially in the middle of winter because tons of vitamin C. Desperation food. <laughs> So you were saying uh, a couple winters ago, you went through a ton of heart. I did, yeah. I was uh, butchering at McNeil. And for some reason, a lot of the people that purchased uh, from our local ranchers here, um, the thought of heart turned them off. And, you know, of course, my eyes lit up and it just came my way naturally. And so for for a good three, four months there, uh, every morning, my son and I would eat a heart and eggs, real simple uh, sear on the heart and a couple eggs over easy and life was good. So you were what, slicing it and, and just searing it in the right. pan? Yeah. So it was what, medium rare or something like that? No, I'd cook it all the way through. Oh, okay. It was easier for my, at the time, Liam was four years old and it was easier for him to chew. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. Cause usually every time I've had heart, I had never actually had it, uh, just seared like that until pretty recently either because whenever i've made it before which it's not as often as i probably should because honestly like a lot of awful used to be really cheap and now it's a lot more expensive it's in vogue now isn't it yeah well so many places are finally getting turned on to it that now it's like you know you used to be able to get oxtails for like what a dollar a pound or something and now they're like eight bucks a pound yeah i i I worked for years uh, in the restaurant industry trying to to get customers to eat awful. And it's just a really hard sell. But now that it's in vogue, it's almost like a, a game of daring. Right. When people go out, well, I dare you to eat this. And it's great to see that people are becoming more adventurous. Well, the one thing that it is, it's always been pretty easy to get people to eat other than, you know, hot dogs is uh, is uh pate like chicken liver, right. chicken liver mousse like even people that hate liver will eat chicken liver mousse chicken liver pate like no problem i'm guessing because there's so much butter involved uh, you know again you know you're breaking this down you're 
uh, heavy spice and and enriching it with fats right. and and yeah, that does make it more approachable. And I really think you're taking away the thought of what of where this came from. You know, right. you're not putting a, a bloody heart on on the plate and say, "Hey, eat yeah. this." You know, it's it's packaged well. Right. You're taking something, you're refining it. You know, and and it is a way to use something that it, it is delicious. But but even just knowing. What the thing that they're eating is, is enough to put people off of it. You know, even if it is put into another package, like pretty recently I made a coca van and I've never made it the traditional old school way, which oh, is with, with blood, which is with blood. Right. And so when you're using blood, it, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a pain because you have to catch your blood with some vinegar because otherwise it'll coagulate. Yes. Yeah, so it starts clotting quickly. Yeah. You know, you catch it in a, in a container full with a little bit of vinegar in it. Keep it stirred up, and then when you're actually using it, you can't use it or you can't uh, add it until the very end because if it boils, then it coagulates as well, and it right. gets really gross. And so I added it right at the end, and it thickened like you wouldn't believe. It's I mean, like pudding, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is, and especially like whatever was left over, I stuck in the fridge to just see what happened, and literally it did look like <laughs> just, like chocolate pudding. You know, it's so dark and it's so rich, but the the flavor was so intensely like irony and it just, it just tasted like, you know, something that was alive. This sounds delicious. It was really delicious, you know, and it's the same kind of thing with black pudding, which if, if my chickens are listening, <laughs> don't listen because probably the next, the next go around, I, I think I am going to try to, to save some more of the blood and, and make black pudding because, um. That is also. Mm, I could eat that every day. <laughs> do you like the Do you like the English style with uh, oatmeal and barley, or do you prefer the, the French style boudin noir? That's um, a little. I softer. like both, but what I had more experience was when my wife and I lived in Ireland. We would eat uh, the Irish style, which they would use barley right. and pig's blood and pig's liver. You know, honestly, probably most of the innards ground up and put in there. Yeah. That's uh, primarily what we ate. I didn't see one person say no to black pudding. It was just one of those things that was like every morning, yes, that was gone first. Yeah. It was a great indication of how delicious it was. It's And that's actually something, it's a little strange to me that we aren't more familiar at least with that because I don't know what happens to vast quantities of blood that must come out of American slaughterhouses because it's pretty difficult to find. I've noticed you can get it now Down the drain. Either that or I guess some of it must get used to make like blood meal for gardens and stuff. But if we would just turn our attention to the deliciousness of black pudding, man. Again, that goes back to uh, eating whole animal versus uh, select parts. Right. Yeah, we're very picky, you know, like especially when you know and this is actually something when i when i when i wrote the intro and i looked up the nutritional facts on tongue there it's exactly the same as a ribeye they have right? they're both super and it, which which surprised me i thought it was going to be much leaner but the no, fat is so gosh, fine no. in a tongue you know cuz you you look it's at it it's marbled yeah it. you look at it but it doesn't it doesn't quite look the same you know but it's it's the most flavorful part of the animal, I believe. Do you uh, do you get it frequently, or you know, I slide it in at the restaurant quite a bit in the summer. Usually, it's tacos, but this year we started corning it um, oh, like and then smoking kind. it into a pastrami. Nice. And then uh, we put our kraut on there, and uh, that went over really well. Oh, make it like a Reuben kind of. That's exactly what we did. Uh, what uh, what uh, what's your curing process for it? Well, we brine it in uh, real heavy brine, typical uh, corn brine, like 
allspice, black pepper, that type of brine. And then when it's cured, and we and I do use pink salt. Yeah. Um, it it, say, it preserves the color, and I just I like to be uh, for sure. Salt will do the trick, but uh, I'm that I'm that double down guy. Yeah. Well, it's it's better. It I is. Mean, it really is. I I agree. And so uh, then I after that's cured for ten days, I'll uh, dry it off and smoke it. Nice. Real simple. Well, let's turn our attention back to the haggis. The pluck's all boiled and ready to stuff in the bag, so I got that cooking and then turned my attention to the traditional accompaniments to a Burns Night haggis, neeps, and tatties. So actually making the haggis is pretty simple. The hard part is cleaning, cleaning the sheep and uh, scraping the stomach soaking the stomach in vinegar, all that stuff. Actually making the haggis, all you do is you mince the uh, the cooked pluck. I used um, my meat grinder, ran it right through. I minced some of the uh, rendered fat. I rendered a bunch of sheep fat. So I actually froze it and then grated it into the, the haggis. And that suet like that gives a, sort of a characteristic texture of a lot of English puddings. That's why they use them in like plum pudding and stuff. They use uh, suet. There's kind of a sponginess that the suet helps to contribute texture-wise. So after I minced everything, I grated the suet in, put in an onion, finely diced, a little coriander, a little black pepper, and then a fair amount, I think in this case, I probably used eh, three quarters of a pound of oatmeal, steel cut oats, then the stock that was the result of cooking the pluck. So now, and then I had to add a little bit of water to it to get the right consistency. You're just kind of looking for a consistency where it sticks together. You know, you don't want it like wet. You don't want it loose and runny, but you want it to solidify. And then as it cooks, it'll absorb some of the water from the simmering too. And the oatmeal will cook and it'll swell up and it'll give it this characteristic sort of crumbly, loose texture when it's when all it's said and done. It's a, it's a fairly spoonable thing. It's not like, it doesn't come out as slices. So then I got my sheep stomach and I put the mixture in the bag, tied it off. And that's pretty much that. Now it's sitting in a pot of water, waiting to come to a boil. I'm going to simmer it for two hours, roughly, hour and a half-ish, uh, just basically until it comes up to temp because everything's already cooked. The, uh, the, the oatmeal has to cook and the outside, the stomach part will cook a little bit, but that's not edible anyway. I mean. It is if you cooked it for hours and hours and hours. Like that's how you cook when you when you make tripe. Tripe you boil for forever. That's the only way to keep it from being rubbery. So all I'm doing now is waiting for this thing to come to a boil, and uh, then I'm gonna simmer it for a couple of hours. And the next time we see this thing, it's gonna be on a plate, getting ready to be addressed. So in the meantime, I have to make the traditional accompaniments to a haggis, which are neeps and tatties. Neeps. It's short for turnip, but what they call turnip in Scotland is actually what we call rutabaga. And what they call, what we call rutabaga, wait, this is, a, this is a extremely confusing. I went down a rabbit hole one time because, so the Scots call what we call a rutabaga, they call that a turnip. What we call a turnip, they call a swede. And then there's something else that the English, there's another name that the English use for one of them and, and it's different. So it's, it's very complicated. Like this, this whole like naming of various root vegetables is a contentious uh, subject. So anyway, I got some rutabagas, neeps as they're called in uh, Scotland, turnips, but they're rutabagas, the yellow ones. Uh, I, got, I have them just covered roasting in a 425 degree oven with a little oil and a little salt. 
And what I'm going to do is just cook those till they're roasted through and dice them up and pile them on the platter next to the haggis. And then people can dig into that. And the other part of the equation is the tatties. And tatties are mashed potatoes. So I got a pot of potatoes. They're ready to start simmering. I'm not going to start yet because uh, I've still got a while for the haggis. And they, they won't take but an hour or so to cook. And they're salted water, I'm sure. Here's Okay, here's the thing about mashed potatoes. I'm going to say something about mashed potatoes. Good mashed potatoes, the secret, it's not a secret. Everybody knows what it is, is a ton of butter. I don't like a lot of cream in my mashed potatoes. I know a lot of people swear by cream. I honestly think that cream dilutes the flavor of mashed potatoes. I don't even use it anymore. I don't use milk. The only dairy I use is butter and a lot of it. There's a three Michelin star chef in Paris who was literally like the way that he got his three Michelin stars was because of his mashed potatoes. And the secret to his mashed potatoes was that nobody actually knows what the official ratio is, but it's around one part butter to one part potatoes. So like if you had a pound of potatoes, he's using a pound of butter. And I've seen pictures of his mashed potatoes and they're like runny. They, they serve them to you in a little bowl because they're, they're so soft, they don't, you can't pile them you know, on the plate. They just run all over the plate. So anyway, a lot of butter. Now I'm not gonna use that much butter because I'm not a rich man. And honestly, I mean, then you can only eat like a spoonful of them too. But what I like to do to correct my consistency on my mashed potatoes, and I've switched to doing this. I did not always do this, and I just started doing this within the last probably year or two, is I use the potato water that you cook the potatoes in. Peel the potatoes. I, I make them a lot of times. You know, on just a weeknight, I, I don't peel them. I like, I like them kind of smashed. But sometimes you want that fluffy mashed potatoes consistency. So I peel, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking for that, then I peel them. And now I just use a little of the potato water. And the potato water has got all the starch from the potatoes already in there. So it, it, it helps with the texture that way. And also I find, and I, this is something that I've gradually come to appreciate, is that a lot of times using water in a situation like this allows the flavors of the other ingredients to really stand out. Like this, when I switch to, I, <laughs> confession time, I don't really, I'm not that into potatoes. A lot of people love them. I'm kind of indifferent to them. But once I started making mashed potatoes with the potato water, I feel like they taste a little bit more potato-y. You know, the cream, cream's great for texture, but cream can also dull flavors if you're not real careful with it. One of the signs of a real bad restaurant cook is like, they just pour a bunch of cream into a pan and then add some flavorings or whatever and call that a sauce. It's very rich tasting and it's, you know, it's got a lot of texture, but it really, it, cream really takes the edge off of the individual flavors. And so with something like potatoes, if you want it to just taste nice and potato-y, I find personally that just using the potato water is the way to go. So other than that, I'm making my mash. These aren't, I'm not sieving these. I'm not running them through a food mill. I forgot to bring my potato ricer to where I'm cooking the mashed potatoes. So they're not going to be riced. Although using a potato ricer is pretty awesome. It really does make good mashed potatoes. That's it. it this is all pretty simple. I'm going to make a really simple little onion sauce, just some onions and some whiskey and a little chicken stock and a white roux. And I'm not going to go greatly into the detail of the white roux today. We'll save that for another show. When I'm done with this, it'll be haggis, neeps, and tatties. And the next time I see this thing, when I pull it out and put it on a plate, I'm going to have to be giving the address 
to the haggis. All right, let's talk about kidneys because I, a couple. It's been mentioned a couple times this hour, and both I think both of our eyes lit up a little bit. Oh, you bet! <laughs> you give me some uh, dingle pie from uh, from Ireland. Oh, I could. That's that's one of those guilty pleasure foods for me. So describe that. Well, it's basically a hand pie with root veg and uh, kidney, and it's real thick gravy. Lamb kidney. Lamb kidney. Yeah, they don't eat too much beef over there. Yeah. Do you uh when when you make kidneys, do you do you do anything with them because I know I soak mine in, in a buttermilk brine for Always. a while. Oh, if I don't have buttermilk, I'll do vinegar. And another another good way to uh to do that is you can bring them just to a simmer um and toss that water out and do that a couple times and that can flush out a lot of the the unwanted uh impurities. And then do you uh do you cut them open and and cut off the you know cuz there's that little white bit I've cut it off sometimes and then I haven't cut it off other times and honestly it I depends on how uh, I haven't found that it makes lazy a, I'm being that day right I haven't found that it makes a huge difference it doesn't you know I like it personally I like my kidneys just sauteed in a pan real fast or if you can throw them on the grill grilled kidneys are you know I've never tried funny enough I've eaten a lot of of kidney and I've never tried and grilled I'm I'm a Clarified butter into the cast iron skillet guy. This is the thing about awful is that I love the stuff, but I don't really eat that much of it, mostly because I'm the only one that eats it. You almost have to go out of your way yeah. to not only procure it, but uh, yeah, well, prepare it. it. It's, hard, it's, it's a little hard to get unless you know somebody. And it's, 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 it's expensive these days. You know, It's not cheap like it used to be. And I'm the only one that's going to eat it. And I keep trying to persuade my wife to, you know, hey, I got some, I got some kidneys. You want some? And she's like, no. I get the same look. <laughs> it's like, all right, you're dreaming, bud. <laughs> I'll tell you one um, awful that is available to us Alaskans in the summer. And it, and in quantity is salmon hearts. Oh, yeah. Salmon hearts are so delicious. And they're, they're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I when I'm when I'm down on the Kenai, I have a Ziploc, and if I see people just chucking that, I'm like, hey, can I have those hearts? And all of us Alaskans have that available to try. And what do you like to do with them? My favorite is carbonara. So really, start start Whoa. the pan off with a little bit of bacon. Uh huh. Add your hearts. Add if peas, if you want. I'm not a pea guy in my carbonara. Yeah. Then add my uh, your your fresh linguine. Uh, a little bit of butter and uh, cracked pepper, and life is good. You know what? I, you know what I really love about that is that you didn't say cream. No way. <laughs> oh no! I'm so happy right now. Sam- D- different sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I- I'll take it either way. But for me, for, I-, I just don't want to mask the flavor. It's a really delicate uh, flavor, and it's completely different flavor than salmon. I'm I'm pretty. I've actually never eaten for the amount of fish that I have killed. I haven't eaten. I, I think I ate one raw once out of a halibut that I just dressed because, like, you're, they always make you do that. Oh yeah, know? goaded into it. Yeah, uh, you know, put, and, ha- put hair on your chest type. Right. Of yeah. It's like you know, hey, you're a greenhorn. Here you go. Do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on a little bit because the other one of my one of my favorite things to do is uh, is interesting things with heads. Oh yeah, <laughs> make the house smell real good. You know, and it's funny that, that head cheese has such a weird reputation because it really is just meat. I mean, there's some glands. It's the, it's the original lunch meat. It's pretty terrific. Now, have you ever peeled the skin off the head and made a made a galantine with it? 
I, I've never made uh, galantine, but I have peeled many a head, and usually we torched it, which is kind of fun. You know, you're burning a head. <laughs> yeah, I like to I like to peel the head off and then stuff it with sausage and other stuff, and then simmer the whole thing, and then you get you know you bring it out. And you just have a huge pig head and people are like, oh, that's disgusting. And then you can just cut right in the middle of it. And people are like, where's the bones? You know, because right. it looks the same. You can stuff it with anything. It's pretty delicious. The other, the other way that I've seen it done, this is one of the most spectacular presentations that I've ever seen in a restaurant. It was at a place, there's a place in Montreal called Au Pied du Cochon. And they do, they do a whole head that they deep fry. And then they put like whatever seafood is in season oh, in the mouth. So the particular time that, that my wife and I were there, a couple next to us ordered it. I was trying to get, get Kelly to order That's it. And one she heck said, of no. a surf and turf. And so they, but a couple right next to us ordered it and it was lobster was in season. So it was this enormous pig head with a lobster hanging out of its mouth and then just like, and it's sitting on a board and there's like piles of mustard and like piles of pickles and stuff all around it. And I was just blown away and I was like, can I take a picture? They let me take a picture. And then they were like, here, try it. And they gave me a piece of the skin and it was the most outrageously delicious crackling that I'd ever had. Oh, it sounds divine. <laughs> How luxurious. It was awesome. And then, and then for, for my, for my dinner, they had a pork uh, liver special. So I was like, is that uh, the pig presentation where they stick the knife like right in the head as it comes out? Yes, they do. Yes, there's I've a, seen that. There's a knife in the brain. It's it's pretty spectacular. But we've got to move on to the uh, main event. The haggis is finished, and it's time to kick things off. So I brought it to characters where a hungry crowd awaited. John Cottingham carried the haggis in on a platter to the traditional sound of the bagpipes, and I got on with the first part of the business, reciting Robert Burns's address to the haggis. Face, great chieftain, oh the pudding race! I burn them all. You take your place, punch, tripe, or thern. Well, are you worthy of a grace as long's my arm? The groaning trencher, there ye fell. Your hurdies like a distant hell. Your pain would help to mend a mill in time of need. While through your pores the dews distill like amber bead. His knife, see rustic labor date, and cut ye up with ready slate, trenching your gushing entrails bright, like on a ditch. And then, oh, what a glorious sight, warm reeking rich. Then horn for horn they stretch and strive, they'll take the hindmost on they drive, till their wheel with swelled kites behave, are bent like drums, then old goodman mace like to rave, but think it hums. 
Is there that or is French ragu? Or all you that would stow a sue, or fricassee would make her spew with perfect stunner, looks down with sneering scornful view on sick a dinner. Poor Dale, see him o'er his trash, as feckless as a withered rash, his spindle shank a good whip lash, his knee of a knit, through bloody flood or field to dash, oh, how unfit. But mark the rustic, haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread, clapping his wally knife a blade, he'll make it whistle, and legs and arms and heads will sned like tops a thistle. <laughs> Ye powers, what make mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare, old Scotland wants nae skinking wear, then jumps in luggies. But if you wish her grateful prayer, give her a haggis. <laughs> to the haggis! To the haggis! That's a haggis. Hey. Look at that. Right, can I put it down now? You can put it down now. <laughs> Most likely, you have no idea what just happened. Robert Burns, the first and probably greatest of all poets who wrote in Scots, composed the Address to the Haggis in 1787, mostly as a joke for his friends. The Scottish historian Edward Cowan has even claimed Burns himself hated Haggis. His joke took on a life of its own after he died, because his friends began celebrating his January 25th birthday with an elaborate ritual featuring dinner, dancing, toasting, reading of his poetry, and copious quantities of whiskey. The main event involves parading a haggis out to a bagpipe tune, reciting the address to it, cutting it open, and then devouring the thing. And it's now practically a national holiday in Scotland. Now, those who speak Scots in Homer are few, so I took it upon myself to provide a translation into English of perhaps the foremost poem celebrating sheep innards in all of human history. Fair sit your honest happy face, great chieftain of the sausage race. Above them all, you take your place, stomach, tripe, or guts. Well, are you worthy of my praise? No ifs or buts. The groaning platter there you fill, your buttocks like a distant hill, your oats would help to mend a mill in time of need, while through your pores the dews distill like amber bead. Watch the farmer his knife wield and cut you up with practice skill, making your gushing entrails spill from the carved out ditch. And then I see with such a thrill steaming, smelling rich. Then bite for bite with forks and knives, every man for himself on they drive till all their swollen bellies writhe so taut like drums. Then stuffed amidst their gluttonous cries, thank God, they hum. What hipster with his French ragu? No pig would eat that greasy stew. Foreign fricassee would make it spew as out the scupper. It looks down with sneering scornful view on such a supper. Poor nerd. See him o'er his trash. As feckless as a withered rash. Legs soft like a greased mustache. His fist a gnat. Through bloody battlefield to dash. No time for that. But mark the farmer haggis fed. 
The trembling earth resounds his tread, clapping his mighty fist a blade, he'll make it whistle. And legs and arms and heads fly red, like tops of thistle. You powers who make mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare, old Scotland wants no watery ware that jiggles and sags. But if you wish her grateful prayer, give her a haggis. What happened after that? I can't really play on the radio. <laughs> All right, let's talk about feet because uh, there's more to feet than than the nasty looking jars of pickled pig's feet. Yeah, they don't do it well, do they? <laughs> they're sort of gross. And if that's all you know of feet, then then you don't know very much because they're actually pretty delicious. Um, if you if you braise them for a while, they're they're super gelatinous. You know, if you're if you're not using them for anything else, if you throw a couple in your stocks, right? Oh man, then your stocks become like outrageously jello like. And then you get the the little what I call chef treats uh, when the stock's done. And the the feet have cooled. You get to go over and nibble. Oh yeah, the little the little like blubbery, soft, slightly meaty bits. Now, have you ever boned one out and stuffed it? I have not. That is, uh, I I haven't been down that road. It's it's a fun road. You should you should try it one day. It's it's a lot easier than you'd think. Um, there are quite a bit of bones, you know, but you just slice down one side of the foot and then you open it up and you can kind of dig around in there and pull all the bones out except for just the very end of the hoof. And then again, like you do with the head, you take a sausage of whatever kind. Um, these I, I like a real simple, a simple one with some garlic and uh, some pistachios. And you put it back in, and then you sew up along your slit, and you simmer that like you're doing a sausage. And then you let it sit, and then you get this beautiful. It people get a little freaked out when they see it. Then they start eating it, and it's quite delicious because you get this nice gelatinous skin on the outside, and then this awesome little sausage in it, and it's all neatly sliced, so you get. It's just so pretty on a plate. That sounds delicious. If it's pig, I pretty much would eat it. And they say everything but the squeal, you right. know? And really, that's what I like about Awful is that you're really, you know, if you're going to kill something, if you're going to go to the, the trouble of killing it, I feel like you really should endeavor to use every bit of it that you can. Honoring the animal. Absolutely. Another, another thing that I see now a lot, when you go to Vietnamese restaurants and you, and you get the pho, a lot of them, have you had the beef tendons? I have, yeah. I'm glad that's becoming a trend. It's a unique texture, but I, I think it's fun yeah. and delicious. And they cook it. Where do they come from? Are they from the Are they from the shank? Yes. Is it like the like basically like the Achilles the tendon? Achilles, yeah. That's exactly where it's from. I kind of wondered that because a lot of people consider shank awful too and oxtails, even though they're still meat. They're not that common, but they're also, they're really delicious and they're totally worth getting. Yeah, Osabuco. Braised lamb shank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these have become uh, fairly trendy in the last decade. And, and that is kind of what, what drives uh, the price up is when people say, oh, hey, this really is good. I know. it's it, And the demand. You it's know? kind of one of those things where it's like, well, I want people, I want more people to eat it. But then if more people eat it, then the price goes up and it's oh, no longer cheap. Oh, you should cheap. hear me cuss. <laughs> <laughs> All the stuff that the butcher would throw for me for free or for pennies, now I'm paying almost the same price as i would uh, a ribeye it's uh yeah i get my old man in me comes out do you uh 
Do you serve marrow a lot? I did last year. Um, I just started coming back into serving a little more dangerous stuff in the last couple of years because I'm seeing a, a better response before it would be, we would go through all this trouble to prepare it and then it'd be like a really amazing staff meal. Right. And now people are really, really, really into uh, stuff like marrow. Which is good. Yeah, more adventurous eaters are always good. We have pretty much come to the end of the line, though, for today. So I would like to thank my guest for the hour, Harrison McHenry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really put my heart into the show. (laughs) Well, I really put my liver into it. It sounds like it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, my name is Jeff Lockwood. This has been Check the Pantry. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And we'll see you next week. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2, by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Eben. This is the fourth episode of the winter 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.